That is the sound of protesters gathered in St. Louis, Missouri in the summer of 2020, calling for the removal of a statue of the city's namesake, St. Louis IX. Upon hearing this, two questions left to mind for many Catholics. First, how dare they? And second, wait, who's St. Louis again? My name is Patrick Brown. Welcome to Crown and Crozier. In this episode, we get acquainted with one of the great monarchs and saints of medieval Christendom. Our guest is Dr. Andrew Willard-Jones, author of Before Church and State, a study of social order in the sacramental kingdom of St. Louis IX, which is a fascinating case study of the integrated partnership between the laity and the clergy aimed at building a flourishing Christian society in 13th century France. Dr. Jones serves as an assistant professor of theology and director of the Catholic Studies program at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Don't forget to subscribe to Crown and Crozier wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating, or tell a friend about us. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at podcast at crownandcrozier.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Thanks so much and enjoy this installment of the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. There are two swords. And the question is, which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant at God's first. Welcome to another episode of Crown and Crozier. Delighted to welcome today's guest, Dr. Andrew Willard-Jones of Steubenville University. Dr. Jones, Andrew, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Today's conversation, I'm confident, is going to be one of our classic Crown and Crozier dialogues. Not only timeless, but also timely. Here we love to cast an eye back to the, the treasure and the, rich, the riches of church history and wisdom. But this is also a timely conversation because we're talking about someone who last summer in the midst of all the civil and social unrest in the United States uh, was having his statue pulled down. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about our friend St. Louis. And as all the events were happening from last summer, a couple of things prompted me. Among other things, it was a realization that me, a lot of my friends, a lot of Catholics, we just actually don't know much, much about the guy. So perhaps to break the ice, why don't you tell us why should we get to know this saint a little better? Okay, well, I'm just going to jump right in then, because I think the answer to that question is immediately sort of theoretical. <laughs> At least that's the way I think about the world, okay? So that may be sort of tedious, but nevertheless. The thing about St. Louis, one of the things about him is that he's a saint as a king, okay? So what I mean is, it's not like it's not like he's a saintly king, or he's a, he's a saint who happens to be king, or he's a king, but then he's also really pious and religious and says his prayers and is nice to poor people or something. It's, it's actually that his sanctity is holiness in his office as king, right? So he's, he's and, and we're familiar with this sort of a concept of your, the saintliness of a saint being the performance of his vocation in a holy way when we talk about, say, monks, nuns, priests, even fathers, mothers, this sort of thing. But for some reason, we, we tend not to think about that's, uh, the dynamic being similar when we talk about political or economic issues or those sorts of things. So we're like, oh, he's a really holy man who was king. But that's not, that's not the way in which we understand, we should understand his his sanctity, his sanctity is in the performance of the office of kingship. And what one of the reasons why that's so 
so incredibly significant is because what it points to is that kingship, or if we want to modernize it, political power, is not extrinsic to the church's call to sanctity. It's not something outside of the church's um, redemption of humanity and of the world that then sometimes holy people occupy those offices. But in fact, it itself is integral to like the office of king, the office, the political office is integral to the, the, the redemption that the church offers the world. All right. So sanctity is possible in the office, not next to it or beside it or something mm-hmm. like that. You see what I'm saying? So, so there we're getting at, what we're getting at is that the, the things, the sorts of things that, that the laity do in their political role. So it like, for example, in kingship, obviously are not um, secondary or inessential to the mission of the church itself. So the mission, and, and this is something that the Middle Ages understood extremely well, but we have a very hard time with, right? Because, because we tend to think somewhere along the line, I think it was somewhere around 1517, we started thinking that salvation, that salvation was something that happened after you died, right? So, so we started thinking about, we tended to think about the world as this sort of holding pen or this sort of like penitential period where we awaited salvation, which would come only after death. And, and, and within that way of thinking, then, when we say, when the church says things like no salvation outside the church, most moderns seem to interpret that in our minds as talking about people who are baptized when they die get to go to heaven and people who aren't baptized when they die don't get to go to heaven. But in the Middle Ages, they had a, they had a much more robust understanding of that. So when they said no salvation outside the church, they included within that in this life, like the church was the place where there was peace. The church was the place where there was charity. The church was the place where you could avoid exploitation, violence, injustice. The church was the place of salvation. There was no salvation outside the church now, right? And also when you die. So redemption begins in this world. It begins now. And then it builds in the church militant, culminating, of course, in the church triumphant. But, the, but it's, a, it's one movement of, of salvation, and so that would mean that when you think about it that way, then the office, what we think of as the political office, so the office of ordering this world, ordering this world and the material, uh, material of this world towards peace is, not, is, is absolutely essentially integral to the mission of the church. So I'm, I'm seeing some dotted lines here between everything you've just explained and more recent proclamations and teachings of the church in in the mid 20th century, for example, around the universal call to holiness in in terms of every member of the church being called to fulfill the role of priest, prophet, and king. Presumably there's some connection there. Absolutely. So so what you see happening surrounding Vatican II and the the universal call to holiness is actually a hearkening back to a more medieval understanding. And sometimes that's lost because we, we think often we'll think of Vatican II as being innovative or progressive. And in, in lots of ways, that's, that's, that is the case. But in many of, of what we perceive as being innovative or, or progressive is actually highly traditional, right? It's actually, it's actually reaching back further behind exactly. modernity. I mean, you see this in Lumen Gentium um, very clearly where the church is reintroduced as all of humanity. What the church is, is the redemption of all of humanity and with all of humanity, the cosmos. So it's this hugely um, ambitious and sort of expansive con- ecclesiology, right? Conception of the church. Well, let's talk a little bit more about St. Louis the Man and the kingdom that he tried to foster and the, the, the setting 
of his life. Looking at the introduction to your book, Before Church and State, A Study of the Social Order in the Sacramental Kingdom of St. Louis IX, in your opening pages, at least by modern contemporary standards, you make some pretty bold claims, i.e., in 13th century France, there was no fussing, there was no confusion or conflict over problems, rivalry between church and state. There was no concept of the secular or the religious. There was nothing like that at all. And you emphasize that. You hit the reader over the head pretty clearly with that message. So it begs the question, if it wasn't all that, then what was there? Yeah. So so it's important that, that we understand what I'm, what I'm getting at there, because you're right. I, I sort of state my case in an in a extreme way. <laughs> and then the rest of the 500, 600 pages of the book is like justifying it, right? So normally, normally we assume, moderns assume that our division of the world into say secular things and religious things, church and state is essential. Is a, These are like fixed categories that aren't problematic. And then when we go back in time, we can say, what was the church up to? What was the state up to? What was the secular stuff? What is the religious stuff? And we sort what we find in the historical record into those categories and then try to put a narrative to it, right? That's like the normal way that we go about it. And that is, is really fundamentally, methodologically uh, flawed and wrong, right? Because the, the, the secular, the, con- the idea that there is a realm of, of the world that somehow does, isn't relevant for the ultimate end of man. So the, the ultimate like meeting of man with God face to face that is somehow outside of that. And that, and, and this can be a really, a really subtle concept of the secular. Cause you can say, you can say things like everything that we do is about God and it all takes place in this sort of neutral plane that's called the secular. So everything's about religion. So now you have the concept of religion and everything. Religion is good and everyone should be religious but that religious thing takes place on this playing field, which is it's what you're imagining as itself being neutral, right? Okay, so that's the thing that doesn't exist in the Middle Ages, that sort of a concept, right? So in the Middle Ages, in our wor- uh, words, I guess we would say something like all of creation, all of the cosmos, all of human uh, experience is aimed at returning to God. There's no place, there's no plane on which we can kind of articulate a discussion of religious things with as if there's some sort of a backdrop that's something other than religious things. I'm already I'm already compromising the concept by using words like religious and secular because I have to, right? Because that's our our sort of mental furniture. But they don't have that. Right? So they don't have these conceptual problems that we have. So, what is there? Well, there's sin and there's so there's vice and there's virtue there's sin and there's charity right there is the old testament and there's the new testament there is law and there is grace there's it's not that it's not that it's one sort of homogenous monastery or something where everything is 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 perfectly in place and accounted for it's a hugely dynamic world that is moving from that is attempting to move from imperfection to perfection but so, but the, but you can see how the divisions, the way in which they would divide up their world, just has nothing to do with the way we divide up our world. The very closest you might get is something like the infidels, like those outside Christendom. But even there, they're infidels, right? They're not neutral. They're not secular. So, my uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Saint Louis the Ninth, he accedes to the throne, twelve thirties, twelve forties. That's right. How much of what you just described is already the predominant 
mode of being, mode of thinking, social order by the time he takes the throne? And how much does St. Louis himself put his own stamp on, if you will, during his time as king? The whole narrative of the Middle Ages is the narrative of the construction of this society. I mean, we can go push it all the way back to Charlemagne. We can push it back to the fall of the Roman Empire if we want to. I mean, you, the, the way history works, of course, is you can always push it back one step further, right? <laughs> right? So maybe the best way to begin or to, put, to begin it would be the discussion of the reform movement that begins really in the 11th century. And that that is starts out initially as a monastic reform movement. So that what are they reforming? They're reforming the, the post-Carolingian corruption. So the Carolingian Empire falls and um, society sort of devolves into sort of feudal, violent, petty wars and sort of corruption, mon- monastic corruption, that sort of thing. Okay, so the reform movement is aimed first and foremost at reforming the monasteries, but they're reforming the monasteries within this cosmic vision that I'm talking about. Right. So the monastery is a microcosm of a proper Christian order. Mm. So from the reformed monasteries, that notion or that worldview then expands, it comes out. And so it captures the papacy. So now you have a reforming papacy. The reforming papacy then moves to reform the clergy, the reforming clergy to reform the laity. Right. And you have this reforming movement, but all of it is animated by this idea that the cloister, the sort of perfection that's possible in the monastery is because it's possible in the monastery, that's a demonstration that it's possible in the world, right? That the world ought to be by rights, a sort of monastery. And that, and that doesn't mean that we're all monks because, because the different vocations and the, and the different um, departments of the world would have their own mode, their own mode of sanctity, right? Which is something that we're familiar with in the universal call to holiness. But the point would be that the sanctity, the sort of per- pursuit of perfection that characterizes the monastic life is the proper or- orientation of the totality of the church, the whole church, which is all of humanity. So you have this reforming movement. Now, this then I- accelerates in the 12th century, and you start getting the institutions that we would associate with the high middle ages being built, uh, canon law, the universities, the development of scholasticism, the new religious orders, the reforming religious orders. Um, now, this all sort of culminates, I think, in the in the pontificate of Innocent III, right at the turn of the 13th century, right from the 12th to the 13th century, and, and the Fourth Lateran Council, which takes place in 1215. And it, when you read the Fourth Lateran Council, the Great Council of the Middle Ages, and it's really a sort of blueprint or an assertion of this conception of a holy civilization. So, the answer to your question is no. Louis Louis is born into this, and Louis takes up the the mission and it attempts to advance it in his office in his kingdom. Right. So, Lateran four twelve fifteen hugely influential. In a lot of ways, we can think of Louis's reign as being an attempt to implement the council. So, can you give us some examples of what that looked like? Some of his major accomplishments, perhaps major struggles in seeking to implement and fulfill that vision? Um, we might divide Louis' reign into two, two sections, two categories, I guess, just for convenience, even though for him there are unity, and I think we can see how they would be unified. But one would be crusade, mm-hmm. and then the other one would be justice, internal justice in, in the kingdom. Now, these are, these are two aspects of the same imperative, of course. I want to talk about justice, actually, first, um, because it's, it's probably the one that's the most... Um, bizarre to us because <laughs> crusade, I think we kind of get, I hope, well, a lot of us do. There's a very different conception of social order in the 13th century than we have. 
Right. So we tend to think of coming out of the modern period, and I think Hobbes is the most obvious example of this, but it's, it's, it's characteristic of virtually all modern political thought. We tend to conceive of society as being competitive in its essence. So individuals are competing with each other, um, even to the point of violence, and they sort of start to come together to form political association because that's the most reasonable or the most productive way in which to advance their self-interest against each other. Okay. So, so it's, there's a, the, the idea would be something like man is fundamentally violent, fundamentally um, disordered or bad. And then politics or the political order comes along after the fact to, in, to impose order right, on society. Um, and this gets us to the idea, in fact, that that politics is somehow extrinsic to who we are, or something somehow somehow outside of us, or something right. we do right uh, aside from our very human nature itself. Okay, so this is a modern conception, and one of the things that happens there is we tend to then we tend to then think that states are always these absolute or proto absolutist uh, outfits because what they want to do is extend their order throughout all of the so all of society. Um, and order it according to their will, whatever that will is. We call it the sovereign will or whatever. And it doesn't really matter if we're talking about absolutist monarchs or if we're talking about dictators or if we're talking about legislatures and popular sovereignty, this conception holds. So the conception of justice in the 13th century is almost the diametrical opposite of this. It's almost a total inversion. So the Christian conception is that mankind is by nature at peace. Mm. Okay, so we live together at peace um, working together, fulfilling our vocations in relation to each other, right? And that this is the natural condition of man. Now, if, if I can, if I can just interrupt, but does that, or how does that comport with the reality of our fallen nature and the, the taint of the taint of original sin? Right. So that's the key, right? So because from a Catholic perspective, which is the medieval perspective, sin is not complete, right? So sin, human nature is wounded but not destroyed, mm. right? So sin tears this fabric of peace, but it tears it here or there, not everywhere, mm. right? Sin intrudes, right? Sinful, disordered uh, affections, disordered desires, disordered behaviors, rips peace. But it's exactly the fact of peace, the pre-existing fact of peace, that that is the, the condition which renders sin painful, right? So this is, and this is, this goes to St. Augustine, that we're in a tranquility of order, and that's the reason why our own disorder hurts us, right? Because there's a violence there, right? Okay, so there's a peace that sin that sin disrupts. So that that brings me exactly to the office of someone like a monarch, right? Because the office of the monarch then in the medieval conception is not to create order, right? So it's not, for example, he's not a legislator. That's not he doesn't he doesn't make laws very rarely, right? What he does is foster the peace, but more importantly, to stop those who are disrupting the peace, mm. right? To seek justice means to, to when, when there is a conflict, when there is violence that appears here or there, the monarch needs to intervene to discover. So then he comes in as a judge to discover what the peace had been. What was the condition of these people before they started fighting with each other? Right? How was it that they were living without violence? Because violence is intermittent, not constant. Right? So how, and then to try to, based upon that, figure out who is at fault in the conflict, if, if you can figure that out, 
and then to rectify the situation or to restore it to peace. And if that's successful, the king fades away, right? Because the king isn't the principle of order. The king is the maintainer of order. This is, this is radically different than modern politics, right? It's, it's, a, it's, it's, not, it's not a state. I mean, you get into the modern period, you get into the 16th century, and all of a sudden, you know, people are discussing in, in political science, political theory, that the primary function of the sovereign power is the legislative function. He, you know, think of Louis XIV, you know, uh, something is law because I will it, right? right? That, that sort of a conception. Now, that would be, um, that's, that's antithetical to the conception of monarchy in the 13th century, which would have understood the law as being the way that people live peacefully, right? Fundamentally, that's the law. So you're, you have to discover the law. You don't make it. So a, a couple of things that uh, you do really, really wonderfully in the book, you take this concept, you showcase it, and you demonstrate that the king can't perform this function on his own. I mean, everything you described requires a network of helpers and implementers who does the king who does the king turn to for help in fulfilling this responsibility again you put this in juxtaposition to modern politics often helps right so in in modern political theory we think that the state wields its authority or makes its power felt through administration through bureaucracy through a centralization of power that then is central it's pulled to the center and then diffused out through through mechanisms of um, of like rational bureaucratic organization or that kind of a thing. In the 13th century, Louis has almost none of that. I mean, the number uh, is it's the biggest kingdom in 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 Europe. Huge, huge population. You know, massive economy, all of that. And there's, I, I don't know, my my best guess would be maybe 50, 60 sort of like full time helpers of the king. Okay, <laughs> he's short staffed. There is no there is no state, right? Like we think of it. Okay, so. What is there? Well, there are in the same sort of way, according to the same principle that I was just talking about, that social order itself is understood as the condition of social order, not something that's produced, but something that's there. In the same sort of way that the rule of the monarch is um, an aspect of a, of a grouping of friends, is a, is a way to really put it, right, who are engaged in the same mission as he is. So if we think about like, you know, village order. The vi- the village has a peaceful order, a way in which the different people in the village live together. And every once in a while, that's disrupted by conflict. The the sort of governmental order operates in the same sort of way. So there are relationships between the king and other nobles, in particular, right? A whole a lot of other nobles, um, including the church, the the clergy, who are a part of this uh, kind of elite class, and they they sort of control different batteries, different constellations of power in society. Okay. So they, they have different lands, different resources, different church offices, that sort of thing. And they combine them together, not through centralized imposition, right? So it's not like, it's not like the, the Lord, Lord somewhere out in the countryside receives his office as a commission from the king. Right. Or the bishop receives it as a commission from the king or something, which is something we're used to with absolutism. Rather, they their power emerges from below. Right. Their power emerges from the social order itself. And then they combine that with the kings in the pursuit of this holy this holy society. So an obvious way that we could see this would be something like um, taxation. 
All right. So like ta- the taxing function is something that we think is sort of a, a standard function of, of states. Well, Louis couldn't tax his people. Like Louis, Louis didn't have the ability to tax people. So if he needed money, he had to ask this network of friends, hey, let's go. We need to go on crusade again because, you know, the, the Islamic forces have made this progress. We have to fight against them. We need this money in order to do that. We need to raise an army. And then they in council say, yeah, OK, let's do it. And so then they uh, combine their resources together in order to pull something like this off. So large scale action is always cooperative or, or it can't happen. So this is a sort of irony, maybe, because it's, it's starting to sound sort of democratic. Right? <laughs> and it, in a lot of ways, it's far more democratic, uh, I think, even than our, our system. It sounds democratic, but in 13th century France, there wasn't this modern day notion of equality, particularly as a, as, as a driving force. Yeah. You argue there was more this sense of differentiation and mm-hmm. even the monarch seeking, imploring the cooperation of those below him, the nobles. Can you speak to that a little bit more in terms of that contrast between medieval differentiation and modern day notions of equality? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a this is a a massive and massively important topic, right? So let's think about this. So differentiation, how is peace possible? Right. Mm-hmm. How is a peaceful society possible? And and the way in which it is, is that different people have different um, offices that involve different power constellations. So if we want to use like modern kind of terminal political terminology, the control of different resources, the control of different um, constellations of power, and then they combine them together with each other in their own mode in order to achieve the peace. And that that's the only way the peace is achievable. So an obvious example of this, and a sort of everyday example for us, would be like a family, right? Where you have um, parents, fathers, mothers, and children, and they are dramatically differentiated, right? Like the child, there's no there's no notion of equality between a father and his son. Mm. No, no notion of a sort of egalitarian equality. That would be absurd. But we also don't then say, and therefore the father is more dignified and has more value as a human being or more, right? So the, the, what we say instead is the good of the son, so the ability of the son to develop into, into an adult himself, so his movement into his own perfection, is dependent upon the differentiation of the father, right? The power of the father is prerequisite to the fulfillment of the end of the son. And it actually works in the converse as well. So the, the end of the father, right, the achievement of his vocation requires that he has this power over the son, right, and that he use it in a loving way to elevate the son into his manhood, right? So you have, that's the notion of a common good, right? So the, the relationship between a father and the son would be something of a common good, a good that they share, but they share from within their mode, their differentiated mode. So the common good is shared by the son in a sunny way, a sonship way, and the and the common good is 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 enjoyed by the father in a fatherly way. But they're both enjoying the common good. Okay, so now we need to extend that outside of the family to include circles of friends, different trades, different vocations, different. But that sort of a conception that our inequality, our differences, is what makes a society of charity possible. Because if you think about what charity is, gift giving. Gift giving is as it is as necessary for gift giving to work that there's inequality 
as it is for hatred to work or violence to work, right? Violence requires inequality. So does gift giving. <laughs> you, you, you can't give something to someone unless you have it and they don't. And so inequality or differentiation is the prerequisite to the moral life itself. I mean, so any sort of conception of humanity as primarily moral beings must uh, start from the position of we are all different and that's good. Mm. And that and that difference involves differences in power in different areas. And that and that actually has a whole metaphysical component to it, because in the Christian conception, human beings have to move from potency to act. And the only way to move from a, a potentially full human being to a full human being, which is another way of saying from not virtuous to virtuous, is for other human beings to lead you. And, and so there's built into who we are in our very natures a hierarchy. There are those above who's, who must reach down to those below and pull them up. That's, that's an aspect of human nature itself because we're dynamic and temporal. I'm hearing a lot of echoes of St. Paul in this. Yeah, the right. Church, the, the church, our society, having different members, fulfilling different functions, but together being an integrated body. Yeah, so, so what's the alternative? The modern egalitarian alternative, the modern conception of society is a big sea of individuals mm. who are united how? Not intrinsically, because intrinsic unity needs differentiation, but are united extrinsically through law, through coercion, right? Through contract, through these sorts of things. So you have a sea of individuals who are, have no intrinsic relationality to each other. Their relationality comes only through the elevation of a power that is above and, and above all of them, and that transcends all of their individuality and penetrates that and sort of forms the relationships, the possible relationships. This is the concept of the modern state, modern sovereignty, and it's really idolatry because what you're what you're supposing is that the modern state is God, <laughs> right? And, and, and that's exactly what the Christians of the Middle Ages won't have. Order is not the product of top-down human imposition. Order is in the cosmos itself. We just need to, to bring it out, to work with it, to develop it. In, in your work, you describe kind of an animating principle of, of justice in 13th century France as being that an offense against the peace is likewise an offense against the faith. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about that? This is just a conviction that Christianity is true. So the peace, how is the peace possible? Well, well, the peace is possible because Christ, Christ's redemption occurred. And so, and so the violence of, of the Old Testament period, the violence of the age of nature and the age of law is no longer absolute. Now, because of what? Revelation and grace and the work of the church, because of that, Charity is now possible. This is just a conviction that Christianity is true and that it works. Okay, so it's real and like real life. And once you have that, then you say, well, the path to peace then necessarily goes through Christianity or as an aspect of Christianity. These aren't extrinsic to each other. The peace and the faith are integral to each other. So, and this is this obviously, I think this actually actually has is just an aspect of common sense. If you are violent, if you're a criminal you know, not just like one slip or one fault here or there, but, but systemically violent, systemically criminal. You must not be responding to the truth and the grace that the church makes available to us, right? You must be rejecting those things. And this is, and they just come out and say this. It's like violent criminals are necessarily not Christians because Christians aren't violent criminals. Right. Okay. So, 
they may they, like again they always make allowances for sin and for fault and for redemption and for um, uh, you know uh, penance and all this sort of thing of course i mean that's the whole drive is to bring people back to penance but sustained violence sustained conflict leads necessarily to a conclusion of heresy of some sort now the inverse happens as well so heresy in modern in modern um, thought because we've reduced religion to this sort of internal mental sort of um, reflective act of the individual. We heard the, hear the word heresy and we think, oh, you have the wrong beliefs about the Trinity or something. And it's like, yeah, okay. I mean, it, technically in a sort of theological sense, that's heretical. But in the 13th century, what they meant by heresy was a heretical way of life. They were uncons- relatively unconcerned about the particular beliefs like the particular dogmatic beliefs of, say, the peasantry or something. I mean, they were concerned about it. They preached to them and all that. But it's not like they thought, oh, this peasant has the wrong idea about the Trinity. We got to do something. We got to hurt him. Rather, what it was was places where there were systemic social disorder, when they looked at them, when they went and looked at that, why is this region of this of the country violent? Why is this region rent by civil war? Why is this region, like, has so much injustice? And what they found was, oh, look, they have. They also have very wrong ideas about the truth. They're not frequent, frequenting the sacraments, right? Mm. They're avoiding mass. They they're dualists in in southern France, for example. And this and this wasn't something that was sort of. I, I, I'm sort of describing that as if it's sort of a discovery to them. But I think in fact it was just obvious to them that that would be the case. Okay, so what that meant was action against heresy. So concerted action against heresy, which moderns find so uh, abhorrent, was actually only really um, executed or taken uh, taken on when it was also action against civil disorder. Mm. So it was, and, and, and the violation of the peace was more than anything what they found to be worthy of, of some sort of political action. Uh, that's the way they described. So they described heretics as, a vi- as violators of the peace. And they, and they actually conflated heretics with like brigands, sort of highwaymen and that sort of thing. And they, and they, were, they were the same people. You have this this two sided coin in terms of the implications and their the effects of their offense, and I think that brings us back to the notion of the king can't discharge his office on his own. He right. can he can seek to maintain justice, safeguard the peace, but he needs help. That's where the church comes in, because in, in order to to deal with these offenses properly. You need some grace to be administered. Yeah, right. That's absolutely right. So, 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 if the if the monarch's end, his ultimate mission, is the salvation and the sanctity of his kingdom, which is what it was, he cannot do that without the clergy, right? And he can't do that without the clergy for for two very obviously related reasons. One is he needs the clergy to preach the truth and to administer the sacraments to the people right? That's the only path to charity, to holiness. And he also needs himself to receive that, right? He needs to be elevated. He's not just like a pagan king, right? He needs to be elevated into sanctity. So this is why, you know, he, he's a daily communicant, why he, like Louis, Louis is, he, he takes on a sort of modified Franciscan way of life and because he himself has to pursue holiness through what the clerical church makes available to him. And in order to exercise his office. And then the objective of his office, the sanctification of his kingdom is only possible if the people are doing that. So this is the reason why what we're getting at here is how the the common 
characterization of the Middle Ages as this fundamental conflict between monarchy and, ecle- and, and the ecclesi- ecclesial structure, so the clerical structure, is so wrong. It, it, it's really, it's really profoundly wrong. Like neither the clerical structure nor the um, what we think of as like the lay structure, the secular in the medieval sense of secular structure, could conceive of themselves without the other. Right, they, like, they, like the purpose of the clergy is to sanctify the laity. That's the reason why we have priests, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? I mean, Saint Thomas says, Saint Thomas says the reason for priests is to is to uh, confect the Eucharist and prepare the people to receive it. Like that's the reason why we have priests, right? So therefore, the laity and the laity's mission then, so the la- the sanctification of the laity, which is the social life, which is the civil life, which is the economic life, which is the political life, is the end of the clergy, and it's also the end of the laity. They, they obviously need then what the clerical church makes possible in order to achieve it. So it's not that there's not conflict. There's all kinds of conflict in society, but it's totally forced to read that conflict along clerical laity lines. In fact, every conflict that you, that you read, that you find and that you investigate, you find that it's always a lot uh, sort of conglomerations of lay and clerical groups against other lay and clerical groups, mm. right? They're always united, even when they're fighting. Right. So, you know, we have these sort of typical, typical descriptions of, say, the emperors fighting the papacy over investiture or something like that. And then we want to couch that as some sort of church state issue. But of course, the emperor's bishops were all on his side and a bunch of the monarchs were on the pope's side. That's really not the way um, the society was, was divided. One of the beautiful revelations from your book uh, that I discovered was how St. Louis himself had the benefit of that in practice. Uh, particularly with a close friend of his and his life, Guy Fuqua, who rose up the ranks, as it were, in the temporal part of the universe, fulfilling various legal offices, what have you. And then his wife passed away. He took orders and then eventually became the Pope. Can you you just talk a little bit to to Louis and Louis and Guy, Guy, future Clement, being (laughs) being buddies and, and what that meant for the kingdom and what that meant for the social order? I know. I mean, you think about that, right? Like, like this guy grows up and his, his whole career is in service to the king, right? In service to the mission of the king. And then, like you said, his wife passes away. He takes holy orders. It's very, very quick acceleration through the hierarchy because one of the reasons is, of course, Louis is placing him in important roles and wants him, you know, Archbishop of Narbonne, things like that. And then up and up to the papacy. But what's really fascinating here, there's two things I think are very fascinating. One is that Guy makes this move without any sort of discontinuity in his life. Right. All right. So, so I, I mean, I've just read absolutely everything about it. Okay. And I can tell you that there's no like, oh, I'm working for the king. I'm working for the king. I want the power of the king, the success of the king. Now, all of a sudden I'm in the church. So now I'm opposed to the power of the king. And I want, absolutely not. Right. Like what they were doing in the monarchical administration, their objective is identical to what Clement the fourth's objective is. So what Guy's objective is once he becomes Pope, these are perfectly symmetrical continuous things. So the mission, what we're seeing there is the mission of the papacy and the mission of the monarchy are congruent or the same, the, the different aspects of the same, the same dynamic. Okay. So that's a very important thing. Sometimes, sometimes historians have actually read, read histories where people didn't realize that this was the same man, right? <laughs> no, because, because it's sometimes obscure, right? And the sources are right, obscure. Right. And, and so they'll write a history and they'll talk about conflict and place himself on different sides of a conflict. But it, it's like, well, no, that was just him two years earlier. Right, that's the same guy, right? Like they didn't, they didn't see, okay, so like he's fighting himself. Okay, but that's because the, the power of the narrative of the conflict of church and state is so overwhelming. 
But then the other aspect is this aspect of friendship that you were talking about, which is crucially important because what you have there is in our modern conception of political order, that kind of top down sovereignty order, we necessarily think of it as a sort of zero sum game, right? Mm -hmm. So, so if the Pope has power, that must be places where the King doesn't have power. If the King has power, that must be places where the papacy doesn't have power. And so what we want to imagine is that they fight with each other and they may come to some sort of alliance or sort of constitutional arrangement of dividing up powers. That's all possible within the modern sovereign conception. But that's not what we see at all. In fact, there is no constitutional connection between the papacy and the monarchy. There's no like legal or juridical divvying up. Here's your realm and here's my realm or something like that. What you have instead is the unity between them is based upon trust, love, right? Friendship, working together. And that is profoundly powerful, right? Profoundly powerful. So you think about how you can cooperate with your friends. It's a profoundly powerful thing, but it's also extremely vulnerable, isn't it? Mm. All it takes is for someone to, to start being a jerk, <laughs> right? And it starts to fall apart. And this is the sort of vulnerability that's inherent in Christian social order itself, I think, right? Because Christian order is always ultimately aimed towards charity, which can be, which can be shattered by, by violence. There, if we're looking for some sort of a juridical or some sort of an institutional sort of way of reconciling the power of the papacy and the power of the monarchy, we're not going to find it. The way it's reconciled is the Pope is the father, the king is the son, and that they ought to live each other with each other in the ways that a father and a son lives, which is not with a constitution. Admittedly, a lot of what you talk about in the book, naturally, St. Louis himself as the monarch, principal protagonist, uh, main character of focus, similarly uh, on the papal side, Guy, uh, yeah. the future Clement IV. I mean, they take up, a lot of, take up a lot of real estate in the book. Everything that you've just described in terms of uh, the basic structure and understanding of the social order, did that penetrate and trickle down all the way to the, to the folks on the bottom? I mean, did, did Joe Blacksmith and Jane Farmer, did they comprehend, did they fathom, did they buy in? Did they practice this as well? Um, yeah. In fact, I, if anything, it's so, so the Middle Ages, it's, it's, it's very difficult to get to the common people, right? So you can imagine most of our sources are, are about the elite. However, we do have resources for this, and especially during Louis' reign. Because, he, because he's so concerned about the justice of the whole society, his, his courts extend everywhere throughout the kingdom to seek peace, seek justice. Um, and so we have these records of all these court cases that involve like the people you're talking about, the peasants mm -hmm. and the blacksmiths and the artisans, and what what they're arguing before the king's court, how they're arguing it, what the rulings of the king are. And, and that, if anything, is more convincing than anything else, because that the way in which these common people are approaching the social order is the way I've, I'm describing it. So when they come to make an argument before the king, the argument is always, or having a fight with someone, the argument is always... This guy that I'm having a fight with has violated the peace by disrupting the way we live. So we live peacefully and then he has done A, B, or C and disrupted it. The other guy says, no, 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 no. That's not right. I, I have always done A, B, and C and you are disrupting the peace by denying that I have. And so now, that, now what does the monarch do? The, the monarch's court now starts asking questions, interviewing all the people around. How was it? How did they live? And figuring out who's telling the truth. Right. And then reinstituting it, reinstituting it. But this is the way the common people are conceiving of order the, and conceive that, that peace is, is primordial. They also are the people are profoundly concerned about orthodoxy 
and about religious observance. So much so that you you find like in the inquisitorial records that the inquisitors are very often um, like like crowd control. Like they need to say, whoa, 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 people, you know, we got to hear these people out. We have to investigate what's really going on. But the people themselves want to like take matters into their own hands. Most sure, of the time. Sure. Because, because they view people who are violating um, the faith as a direct threat to social order, mm-hmm. right? They, they view that as an act of violence against their peace and act accordingly. So in, in that sense, and I think this is where we as, we as moderns struggle as well in terms of trying to wrap our head around how things were done or how things looked in the Middle Ages. There's, there's often this sense, among other things, of just this enormous gap between the people at the top and the people at the bottom, the, the monarch and the peasants. But what you're describing is uh, through this social order, there was, there was actually a lot more that was accessible to the ordinary folks, oh, including, yeah. in, including including justice and in, including this sense of connection with or or rapport or, or friendship with the people in power. Absolutely, that's absolutely right. So I think our vision is totally clouded by the modern revolutions against absolutist monarchy. So we think all kings are Louis the Fourteenth or G- George the Third or something. And we, and we don't realize, and we, and we mistakenly think that's the way it was in the Middle Ages, right? And that's just totally not true. A medieval knight who had a castle and had some domain, dominion over a certain estate or something was as likely to be in the field with his peasants during hay season than, as not, right? I mean, like right. these are small scale operations, right? And they know each other. They know each other personally and know each other well. And so, and it's, it's a very local way of life. And so they're interacting continuously and it's, de- and you look at something like Louis court. So um, you talked about the peasants, the, the common people having access to justice. So this is not a centralized society, right? So, so the, f- the, the first people in a normal circumstance who would be responsible for the justice of say the commoners in a village would be the local Lord more often than not, or Bishop. So, so a, a lot of the cases where we see the king intervening is exactly when the local lord or bishop is not administering justice properly, mm. right? And then there's a sort of concept of subsidiarity here, right? That, that at that point, there's a sort of a, a breaking of the peace at a higher level, which then necessitates the king intervening. And so you'll have the peasants arguing against their own, their own lord to the king. And this is something that we just... Is everywhere, thousands, tens of thousands of cases. I mean, this isn't like an obscure event. Like this is the, the primary functioning of the king's court. And, and similarly, the king's investigator. So, so he sends out these investigators out throughout the kingdom. And what they're looking for is corruption in the nobility mm-hmm. so that they can rectify it for the common people. It's not perfect, of course. Well, it's not, it's not perfect. I mean, it sounds wonderful. It comes across as beautiful in your book. But uh, I just want to take that thread and, and, and pivot just to the last uh, segment of our conversation here. Not perfect, certainly has its strengths, uh, very beneficial on, on the path to virtuous, and it's accessible, as you've just articulated. But, but if I might pose a friendly challenge to you, notwithstanding all those qualities and strengths, it doesn't seem like it was durable. And that's right. Mid 13th century France, King Louis IX, later canonized. You know, you fast forward a couple of decades, a couple of centuries between Louis the Ninth, Louis the Fourteenth, like right. the picture and the landscape changes dramatically. And I, I can't help but ask, you know, what what do we make of that? 
I think what we make of it is that Christianity is real. So it lasts as long as you're faithful to it. Mm. Right. So it's vulnerable to sin. So a lot of modern politics is about trying to create a society that can be impervious to evil. Right. right? Like, like Kant's, you know, you divide a society imagining that everybody's a devil. And so you try to des design a social order that can accommodate nor more or less universal evil. And that is not what they're doing in the Middle Ages. So in the Middle Ages, in the 13th century, especially, it's a society that's its order is rooted in the peace, which means rooted ultimately in virtue, virtuous society. So in Christianity, in a Christian people, Christian society. And that's always vulnerable, right? Christianity makes Christians are vulnerable to sin. It's an aspect of the inherent martyrdom that exists within Christianity, right? Like in order to be a Christian, you don't build buttresses or walls against all possible threats. You, you expose yourself to the threat. Love is, a, is an act of exposure, right? I mean, it's scary to love others and to put yourself out there. And so I think that you're, you're hitting on a very true thing is that it, Christian social order is vulnerable and it will, it's not, it can be overcome by sin, but that is that itself is not inevitable. So let's look at the you look at the Middle Ages for for a thousand years, and especially let's just say the High Middle Ages. So let's say five hundred years, you have a situation where you have a unified language, Latin. You have a unified religious system. You have advanced agricultural techniques. You have advanced military uh, weapons and technology. You have all of the you have all of the makings for a centralized empire, right? But they don't build one. Why? Why didn't they? Right? Like, well, because the impet the impetus of Christianity, of social Christianity, is towards the diffusing of power into relationships of peace, not the concentration of power into relationships of domination. Mm. Right. And so at any given moment, there were people trying to centralize power into domination. They're sinful people. But because it's a predominantly Christian society, the combined forces of those that are resisting that can overpower that impulse. So what you get once we get into the 14th century, I think, is a, is a shifting in the other direction, right? Like the, the impulse to build an empire, to build centralized power structures begins to win. And that's, and that's just a tragic situation of falling away, I think, from the, from the faith. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and, and of course, that's exactly what's happening, isn't it, as we move into the late medieval and then to the modern period. I think the, the analogy that you put forward in the book is extraordinarily helpful. If, if you look at the, I'll say the transition from the Middle Ages to uh, the beginning of the modern era, 15th, 16th century into our contemporary times, if you want to understand things properly, if you want to understand that genealogy, you, you can't properly understand the grandfather by looking at the great, 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 great grandson. Right. Too often we have this tendency uh, to look back at the Middle Ages through that reverse genealogy and through through the through the lens and the parameters of our own contemporary society but it's it's pretty clear from your book that the the, sh the shift in thinking in, in that pre-modern era has really one might say polluted the waters downstream for us here in the 21st century in terms of how we understand the middle ages and and what they were trying to do so if if nothing else your, your book is a, a a wonderful counsel a wonderful guardrail against that reverse genealogy in terms of, well, let's understand the Middle Ages by looking at what we've inherited or what we think we've inherited today. Right. Yeah. No, I think I think that's an important methodological point. History moves 
in one direction, right? And and what comes later flows out of what came before, um, not the other way around, right? And I, I we have a problem with this because as moderns, we have this sort of Whig conception of history, which is just a, f- a fancy way of saying we think we're the culmination of history. We think we're sure. we think we've got it, and and so everything before us is sort of the telos of everything before us is us. It's coming to us and it's all, you know, we're the fulfillment of it all. Um, and so we try to read ourselves back through and not, and not understanding that a proper genealogy works the other way. What we are flows out of what they were. And so, mm-hmm. and this is something that uh, a lot of modern scholars, good I mean, uh, postmodern scholars really um, ha- have, have come to understand is that ideas like the secular, we have to understand as ideas that have grown out of Christianity, right? So, so it's, it's a, it, what it is, is a sort of a, a, a ripping apart of the tensions, the inherent tensions within Christianity between like nature and supernature, for example, law and grace, right? Body and soul, right? That there's Christianity because it's such a thick conception of reality has these inherent tensions that are not, that are not in conflict with each other at all. But part of what modernity does is is rip these apart, and then and, and and that's and that's the way we start to see the formation of something like the secular. The secular, in that sense, we can start to see, oh, it's a it's a Christian heresy, right? It's 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 positing nature without supernature, the body without the soul, law without grace, mm-hmm. right? The Old Testament without the New Testament, you know. And then that's to read history properly because we were once all Christian. As we approach the, the the close of this very rich, uh, very valuable exchange. It seems pretty clear that the social model and the social order championed by St. Louis, at least anytime soon, is not making a comeback. Never say never. Now, that being said, in, in the absence of that full-fledged comeback, comeback in the short term, what what can we put into practice? What, what guidance uh, can we take uh, from the wonderful life and legacy of St. Louis? Okay, so I, I would say two things. One, one is we must stop thinking about politics as if it has a realm, a, a, like a neutral realm that's separate from our redemption, right? Mm-hmm. That the end of politics, St. Thomas says, the end of all law, the end of law is that all men will love God, okay? So our social order is about our redemption. So that's the first thing is we just have to like, just pull ourselves out of that. And, and I think all sorts of stuff flow from that realization, one, one aspect is it's certainly not a retreat from politics. If anything, it's a renewed imperative to redeem politics or right? to get involved mm-hmm. in politics. Okay. Then the other thing though, is that and this is more important, I think, is that what I'm arguing is that I, I think that people in the 13th century are, are, are basically right about social order. What I mean is I, I think the priority of peace is real. I don't just think they had the priority of peace, but now we don't. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that modern political theory that posits co- conflict as the fundamental social reality is wrong. All right. So our fundamental political reality is our families and our friends and our communities and the places where we're not making deals with each other and we're not fighting each other and we're not trying to pass laws against each other. And as we move away from those personal connections, those personal networks of friends, and the more abstract and impersonal it gets, the more it starts to approximate Hobbes's understanding of society, right? You get on the internet, and it's like, wow, this feels like a war of all against all. I love that nugget in the book, you, you said, you know, Louis the Ninth and Pope Clement the Fourth, they probably would have looked at our modern version of politics and thought, gosh, what a, what a land of despair and, and lack of hope, of, of hopelessness, despair and hopelessness. I think that's absolutely right. And hope is the temporal virtue, right? Like hope is the virtue of 
things can get better. We can do this. And the way in which you do it is not like we, we have to fight big impersonal battles politically, okay? Because that's a reality that we deal with. But the place where there's real power for Christian order is not there. It's at the it's it's in the personal, the personal interactions and um, the personal networks of friends and relations. And those are also where we have the most power, right? Like there's nothing that the big impersonal power structures want more than for society to be a big sea of atomized individuals. Right? Like that's the easiest thing in the world for them to manage, not because, because atomized individuals are terrified <laughs> because they're vulnerable. And so atomized individuals, the threats and rewards, threats and b- promises of rewards work on them. But the more integrated we become in thick networks of loving community, the more, the less vulnerable we become, the less scared we become, the more in a, in, in a very sort of directly political way, the more powerful we become. I love that concept of a life of integration in all of our networks, this notion of living life as an integrated, complete act. A fruit of that is integrity. With, in- with integration comes integrity. And it seems right. like that is, that, is a wonderfully, uh, that is a wonderful, powerful recipe for renewal and redemption. Yeah. Among other things, that's the, the beauty uh, of one of the beautiful lessons uh, from St. Louis' life and legacy that, that you put into the spotlight so wonderfully. So final question. The statues of St. Louis. Do we keep them up? Totally. Let's put more up. Uh, we mu- I say we multiply them. I'm right there with you. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today on Crown and Crozier. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, you can learn more in Dr. Jones's work, Before Church and State, A Study of Social Order in the Sacramental Kingdom of St. Louis IX. Dr. Jones, thanks so thank much you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, Don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and help us to reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. If you'd like to partner with us in the delivery of this podcast, head on over to our website at crownandcrozier.com and click the heart button in the top right-hand corner to learn more about making a one-time or monthly donation. We're sincerely grateful for you listening in and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Until then, God bless.